0: This is Eye on Education on the Agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Hello there and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast from the 10th of June. On our programme this week, we focused on the fast approaching school holidays and we asked, is it okay to take your children out of school early to save money on flights? It's fair to say it started a massive debate. We spoke to teacher Nicholas Radborn. Now, he's director of studies for the senior school at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. He said taking your kids out of school is completely inappropriate. But Camilla Hassan, who's a mum of two, said she's planning to do it. She's going to go to Santorini a couple of weeks before the end of term. And she said she will not apologise for it. We also looked at a new report that suggests the Middle East is experiencing a brain drain because the region doesn't have enough quality universities. We discussed the consequences of that report with Dr. Frederick Schneider, who's an economist and lecturer at the University of Birmingham in Dubai. We also spoke to Fiona McKenzie, who is head of education at Carfax Education. And in our My Classroom feature, we crossed live to Bangladesh to discuss the floating schools system there. Founder Mohamed Razwan explained how his teachers operate in remote river basins with limited access to the internet. Plus, we spoke to the Abdelaziz al Foundation about how they've been benefiting refugees in Lebanon and Jordan. This is Eye on Education, on the agenda. With the Royal
1: Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: I'm joined in the studio by Andrew Hosey. We're going to have a quick run through, aren't we? Hello.
1: Yes, we are. Hello. How are you? Hello.
0: I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Um, We've been seeing... Do you know, it's been a really interesting time to be an education reporter or an education res- correspondent here in the UAE because we've seen a real shake-up of the education sector. Um, we've got new government ministers uh, that we talked about last week. We've got new governing bodies. And now we've got new school operators.
2: Yes. The latest news is that the government has chosen several top performing private education groups in the UAE to run government schools. Talim, Alder Education and Bloom Education will run the newly named Agile Schools or Generation Schools, and they'll be hiring new teachers, staff and management. Ten schools will be run by these groups in the first year. This is all starting from September, and that'll rise to 28 within three years. They'll adopt the national curriculum and that's including Arabic language and Islamic studies with an extra focus on science and mathematics. So Arabic language, Islamic studies, social studies teachers will remain in place at schools with highly qualified and experienced teachers hired for subjects such as science and mathematics. Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, vice president and ruler of Dubai, said in a tweet that the new model would serve thousands of pupils nationwide and he added that tuition fees will be funded by the government, as it's largely the case with public schools. Most people in government schools are Emiratis.
0: Do you know, I feel a bit sorry for those, those maths teachers, the science and maths teachers that are going to get fired. <laughs> Basically, the suggestion is that if you teach Arabic language, Islamic studies or social studies, your All job fine. is safe. But if you're doing science and maths... You need to sort of, I'd be looking around. I'm
2: hoping that it was just slightly lost in uh, translation and it means that the the teaching staff will be added to with further highly qualified and experienced teachers.
0: I'm sure that's the case. Right, in uh, some bad news for parents. I'm so sorry if you're one of those listening now. At least four non-profit schools in Dubai are planning to increase their fees as of September.
2: Yes, uh, those fees are expected to go up and we're looking at rises of between 5 and 8% in the new academic year. Non-profit schools in the city are allowed to increase fees after seeking approvals, although for-profit schools have had fees frozen for three years. Only a handful of schools in the country are not for profit, meaning that they are governed by an independent board and reinvest any profits they earn into the school. Looking at uh, the schools that have announced increases, Dubai English Speaking School, that's one of the city's oldest schools, of course, they'll be looking to increase by 8%, while tuition will go up 5.5% at Dubai English Speaking College. Fees at des- desk desk and Dubai College will also go up. And Jumeirah English Speaking School said it will raise its primary school fees by 5%, but fees at secondary school will not be changed.
0: I hope that isn't a surprising piece of news for all those parents. I imagine they've received letters in the Post already suggesting that their fees will go up. I have to say my kids are at a... For-profit school, if that's how you describe it. Uh, We have had our school fees, as as you just mentioned, they're frozen for the last three years, uh, which is very good news indeed. Although class sizes, as we discussed last week, have started to creep up possibly as a consequence. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where you have to uh, balance, you know, the rough with the smooth, so to speak. Would I pay more for better teachers and smaller classes? Hmm there's a question for you. It's a whole debate. Oh it's a whole new we, yes. we're opening a, I'm all about the debates today I'm feeling quite sort of testy. Right. Quite testy today. Friday Friday is a day for being testy. Um okay another interesting story that we're going to actually cover quite a bit on the program today is that a shortage of top universities in the Middle East and North Africa is apparently causing a brain drain of talent out of the region that's according to a new report out.
2: Yes, looking forward to hearing all about this a little bit later on in the programme. But this has all come from a study by the Majid al Business Group and McKinsey. And they found that 8% of the world's university students come from the Middle East, North Africa and Pakistan. But only 1.5% of the best universities are found there. So the study showed that students also leave for uni because they are concerned about future employment prospects. Research has found that the relative scarcity of top facilities to meet the needs of the region's brightest has led to many leaving to study abroad. And in many cases, well, once they get there, plenty of opportunities open up so they don't come back.
0: You can imagine how once you get settled in a country, Mm -hmm. you know, you might meet your future partner as Indeed. well. Lots of people meet their future partners at university. Um, I'm not sure educators in the UAE would necessarily agree with this idea of a brain drain. Uh, we will be discussing that further with Fiona McKenzie. Now she's head of education at Fairfax Education, uh, who they sort of recommend wh- you know which universities people should go to. You know if you're if you're not sure you don't know where to go, mm. you go to Fairfax Education and they sort of take account of your child's skills and interests and then they'll suggest where you could go to university. So she's very knowledgeable on this topic. Uh, Also, Dr. Frederick Schneider. Now, he's an economist and lecturer at the University of Birmingham in Dubai. He'll be giving us his views on this study as well. Another topic that is already causing quite a lot of controversy on the text is this idea of how well, of parents basically skipping out of school early, you know, and I want to know how many people listening now are planning to take their children out of school early because, well, because it's got hot. It's a bit unpleasant. Do they do anything in the last week? Mm. Mm. Interesting question. Uh, and of course, it makes flights a lot cheaper. Now, lots of comments coming in on this already. Hillary says, "Um, I think it's nonsense that it damages children's education. I don't know any child that does any learning in the last week of school. The teachers seem to use that last week to tidy up the classrooms, clear everything up, declutter, and the children seem to just play games. That said, I do keep my children in school until the last day of term. But I sometimes I wonder why I bother Mm, interesting. Sharon says, I don't think it's a problem for primary kids, particularly the foundation years. Secondary may indeed be a bit of a different matter.
2: Well, yes, I think there's obviously differences between primary and secondary education. I used to remember in primary school, it was, the last week of school was enjoyable. But I also think um, that that possibly was helped by, particularly in the summer, that it wasn't roasting hot. You could be getting outside in temperatures that were still lovely. There was always sports day in the last week, I seem to remember, of uh, the summer school term. Yeah. Christmas, there was Christmas concerts and carol services and And whatnot. sweet eating. so (laughs) I think... There was a lot of, well, indeed, I think there was a lot of experiences, not necessarily academic experiences, that were great to be involved in in the last week of term.
0: Well, that is very interesting. You mentioned that. And I suppose we all have to decide on the importance of those experiences. Uh, Certainly, uh, Sharon says that given some of us haven't seen our family for nearly three years and flight scheduling is so nuts at the moment, especially for those of us from New Zealand or Australia, I can only think that it would be in the child's best interest to get... Get home as soon as they can, and for as long as they can. And luckily, I think our principal would agree with that. But what's interesting is that back in the UK, certainly the authorities there would not agree with Absolutely you leaving. Not. No. no. And what do they do about it?
2: Uh, well, a lot. Yes.
0: <laughs> They do, yeah, because parents in England basically are being hit with an increasing number of fines. That's as schools there try to encourage children to stop missing school.
2: Yes. Now, it's apparently a growing concern. 1.8 million children regularly miss school in the first term of the academic year in England. They have been tackling this problem. Parents are being fined around 17 million dirhams for the school year so far. I know that my brother... Uh, received a fine. Did he? Uh, yes, because uh, for them, he works freelance. Uh, hours aren't regular. So actually, his argument, as many other people's arguments are, why would I go in the high points, you know, the the, the, the big prices for oh, airfares, yeah, so etc., pricing et yeah, yeah. The thing that this report in England found out that a lot of it's not to do necessarily with we fancy going on holiday early to get a cheaper deal. It's actually major financial issues that yes. are affecting uh, families. Also, mental health issues, particularly coming back out of the pandemic and increased social media use, which is causing um, issues for teenagers, particularly causing them possibly to miss school. You know, that could Gosh. be, uh, you know, self uh, that, you know how you feel in yourself based on looking at social media, online bullying, etc et etc cetera, et cetera. so there 's a lot of things that are being picked up as to reasons why kids are not going to school also due to um, financial issues mentioned, uh, the kids needing to be kept at home to look after relatives, for example, and also basically not even having a school uniform because they can't afford it.
0: Wow. OK, so it's a very different different landscape back there in the United Kingdom. Um, but we are going to focus our attention here on that topic. Uh, do get in touch if you think that it's OK to take your child out of school early to uh, beat the heat and get a cheaper cheaper airfare. Um, we're going to be speaking to a teacher a bit later on who thinks you are very much in the wrong. So uh, prepare yourself mentally for that. Uh, 4001, get your view in uh, or you can WhatsApp us, of course, on zero four eight seven one double five double zero. Now, in good news, uh, we... Um Yeah, if you're looking to compare and contrast your children's school fees, uh, then you can now do it, can't you?
2: Well, yes, this is the second phase of uh, a a, a situation which was brought in earlier on in the year. All fee-related information for private schools in Dubai can now be accessed online. It was introduced, as I mentioned, for Indian and Pakistani curriculum schools, now available for all private schools in the Emirate. The school fees fact sheet on the KHDA website includes all mandatory and optional fees that schools may charge during an Academic year. The document will also be included in the annual parent school contract. This is to ensure there is complete transparency.
0: Very good news for that. Uh, nice to be able to compare and contrast. I know that uh, I always cry a bit when I do that because my fees are so incredibly high. This is I on Education on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people.
0: Now it's the hot topic that's already causing an awful amount of controversy on the text lines. Uh, It is basically the idea of whether or not it's appropriate to take your kids out of school a little bit early before the end of the summer term to beat the heat and to, well, let's be honest, get cheaper airline flights. Um, I don't know whether it's the same in your friendship group, but I reckon about a dozen of my friends are doing it. I think it was the it was the topic of conversation this morning on my WhatsApp group as to what you should put as an excuse on the uh on the absence form that you hand in to school um People are unashamed about it. Like People are like, we're off to go and do an activity and we need to do it. Um, No one's written yet uh, the flights are cheaper. No one's actually come out and been honest. Um, But they are doing it um, and they're leaving early. I'm not, uh, partly because I work and uh, I can't just naff off for weeks on end. Um, And partly because I've paid for the education and I feel the kids should be in there. And also because the teachers tell me that it is wrong it's wrong to do it and they use every day and they feel that the children need to be there and if they're not in school then they're not learning but i know that lots of mothers feel differently a lot of my close friends feel very differently about that um i'd love to hear from you do get in touch 4001 or you can message us on 04871 mother who is planning to leave early is camilla hassan and she bravely joins me on the line now camilla how are you I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Uh, And I'm intrigued to find out what your plans are for this summer.
3: Well, in a week's time, I'm going to be on a flight to Santorini with my husband and three kids. So that's where
0: we're going. Well, that sounds absolutely delightful. And I'd love to come with you. But I can't help but notice that's at least three weeks before the end of term.
3: I mean, look. I get what you're saying about the school year and everything else. But honestly, the kids are kind of winding down at this point anyway. I feel travel is educational in itself. So being there, you know, we're going to be learning and exploring and having a good time and and having memories. And honestly, this is really the only time that me and my husband can find the time to go away because we both work. So it made sense for us to to go. And I, I have absolutely zero guilt and I don't think anyone should have any guilt
0: about it. Okay, well, good for you. Can I ask the age of your children? Because I imagine that's relevant.
3: Yeah, I have a nine-year-old who's in year four and an
0: eight-year-old who's in year two. Okay, well, that's exactly what I've got. I thought they might have been a bit younger because I can imagine. I can imagine.
3: you feel guilty. Like you're paying for the school and you're paying for the service, and if you don't want to like use the service, I understand in the UK. There's a lot of um, state schools that don't allow that because, you know, for whatever reason. But I think, you know, it's a private education. If we don't want to send the kids in, we don't have to. And what are they are going to miss for a week like, or a week and a half? Really, at, at the end of term, they're not doing anything. It's fine.
0: Are you going to attempt homeschooling on holiday? No, Just- <laughs>
3: absolutely not. Why would I? Look they're still young and I think look, if my kids were at secondary school they were doing GCSEs or they were in like serious you know exams and whatnot then I would understand but I think what they would learn in a week and a half we as a family would have such better experiences and memories and we can learn stuff while we're there and you know we've never been to Greece before I studied classics so I studied ancient Greek and all that so it's for me it's something that's really interesting and exciting for me and the kids will will
0: be part of that so no I don't have any guilt at all is the school i'm 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 in, this is a brilliant conversation um i because i think i think you're the same honestly i think you're the same as many parents who are listening now and they won't be guilt tripped into it they've made the decision and ultimately the holiday is going to cost them you know a, a quarter of what it would if they did it during the term time I, i'm intrigued to know is the school putting up any resistance
3: I haven't told me yet
0: oh my goodness <laughs> Do you, what, what if they Am
3: take I you off? They say it? Why does it, I, I can't understand people are spending time worrying about something that I haven't even thought about. Like, it's my decision, it's my kids. Like, if I want to take them out of school, it's for a week, it's not for a month, right? And I will tell them, I'll let them know, but I'm not going to justify it and say, or lie about it and say, well, oh, you know, I feel really bad. I don't feel bad. We're going on holiday, that's it. <laughs>
0: I mean, so will you do this every term? Would you start, if it was like, if if it added up to like a month off because you did it at the end of every term, would you start to worry about the impact on their education?
3: Look, it's not every term because I can't afford to take them away three or four times a year. But if it's the odd time, then I don't see an issue. Normally we do all of our holidays within the holidays, but I've done it before when we went to Lapland a couple of years ago. I took them out in December but they still talk about that holiday.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is an extraordinary... There's no doubt that travel is an extraordinary experience. And you do hear of some families who take their children out for six months or for a year and travel the world. No, and they're feeling, I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go that far. Yeah. But their feeling no, but, in that situation uh, is that the experience is an education in itself.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, going away, like, I'm not saying you know every holiday has the same educational value but i definitely think there's something to be had for going to new places and experiencing new cultures and you know visiting historical monuments and trying new foods i think it's really important um, so yeah i think it's a great opportunity i know it's probably a nightmare for teachers but you know it's a week it's not it's not
0: a big deal Camilla, it's been amazing speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a brilliant holiday. I feel f- there is no guilt from me coming your way. I do understand. Um, and I hope I hope it goes well. But I'm really intrigued to know what other people think. You've definitely got the conversation going, Camilla. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> like, you thank so you part. to you then, Camilla Hassan. Then uh, Clearly going for a, a brilliant holiday. Totally apolog- uh, unapologetic, I should say. This is Eye on Education on the agenda Gender.
1: With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to U7.
0: Now I don't know whether it's the same in your friendship group, but everyone I know has started talking about what they're going to be doing for the summer. I think all that happens is the thermometer hits a certain number and we're all a bit like, can we get out of here now? Um, I would say at least a dozen families I know are thinking of taking their children out of school earlier in order to beat the heat and get cheaper flights. I want to hear from you. Are you leaving early? Are you worried about the impact on your child's education? Camilla wasn't who we just spoke to she's just going to Santorini in about a week's time well maybe you haven't made your mind up yet well I'm telling you now the next interview that we listen to is going to definitely change your mind uh, although people are pretty bullish on the text so I'm getting some really um, confident, I'd say or brave messages uh, Viv says if the kids education is going to be impacted because they took them out of school two to three weeks early then that's a problem with the school clearly they haven't been pulling their weight for the rest of the year. James says that was a stage call right? If I was a teacher listening to Miss Hassan I would be fuming as she literally did not care. Came across quite selfish in my opinion and I think it's shameful that she's told the nation first instead of the school. Um, Parents can do what they want with their children but they should have respect for the school and the staff. It sets an unwanted precedent. It gives the kids the impression that it's acceptable to miss school to go on holiday. James, I can promise you it wasn't staged. Uh, It's absolutely true. That is how Camilla feels. Um, Zina, my producer, went on search of a mother who was willing to take her kids out of school. Uh, And Camilla is, as you just heard, very unapologetic. But she is not alone. I would say several of my mates would be similarly unapologetic about it. Their vibe is that it's too expensive to fly normally. They haven't seen the family for years. And they just don't really think that the kids get up too much You know, when it's not. You know, in the final week of term. Now, that, now in the UK, it's a completely different picture because parents in England, you get fined if you take the children out of school early. Obviously, a lot of the education system there is free. Uh, so there have to be checks and balances on parents not sending their children into school. It is a growing concern in Britain. More, almost 1.8 million children regularly miss school in the first term of this academic year. Now, obviously, long term absence is a real concern. This is a slightly different picture for the summer. Um, Or is it? That's the question I put to Nicholas Radbourne. Now, he is Director of Studies for the Senior School at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And he had a pretty low view of parents taking their children out early.
4: I just think it's a little bit short-sighted. I think that's the biggest thing for me. Everywhere I've taught, we've pushed the children to make sure they understand 100% attendance is the only way to go because if they're not in school, they're not learning. And that's what it comes down to. And I think that's, that's the scary bit. I don't think parents always understand that. I think that's one of the crucial problems. that, um, But we don't educate them very well, actually. And I think that conversation needs to happen between the school and the parents about why it's so crucial that their children are in school, so they're actually learning and not being taken out early. And it's often the cost of travelling, especially when you're working abroad and it's, you want to go home and see the family and you've got a family of four, and you've got to fly back, and there's an understandable, well, I'll take them out early because it's it's cheaper. I, you know, There's those sort of balances, but they're forgetting the long-term effect it's going to have on the child if they are missing that much time.
0: So I'm a bit like, I pay the school fees, I've worked out how much it costs per day, don't want to miss those days of school. So for me, there's the sort of the fact that the children are learning, but also there's the sort of cost per day basis, which I would balance against the cost of the flights. But all my friends are a bit like, you know, they don't do anything in the last week. The Christmas, it's all just Christmas carols and acting and eating sweets. And at the end of the summer holidays, it's just coloring and crafting out of egg boxes. You know, they don't actually do anything in the last week. So you might as well get them out and save the money on flights.
4: Yeah, I completely disagree with that. The last weeks are some of the best times. We tend to do things like week without walls in the last week of school to do something completely different, take them out of their normal kind of everyday, you know, maths, English, science, whatever, and actually do a far more exciting, creative, enterprise week, leadership stuff, all those sort of things that you don't get the chance to do for the rest of the year. And it's those sort of bonding experiences the children get at that time that you have the you have the space and the time because you've done all the You've done all the tough bits, you've done the assessments towards the end of the year, and you've got this sun, this freedom to be able to do that. And I think it's the, same, it's the same at Christmas. You have that lovely time at Christmas where they're celebrating each other. I mean, our celebration assemblies in the last week of term are some of the most exciting and fabulous bits, because you, you know, you're know you getting them performing, you're getting them singing, you're getting them dancing, you're getting all those sort of lovely things you have around Christmas. And I think you really miss out if, you, if you're missing those sort of times. I, I think they're, they're some of the fun time that they remember. And we use every second of our time as in education now, especially if you take it up the school. I mean, we're only just starting year seven this year. But if you take our year 10s and 11s, there's no time to have that kind of, especially the week before Christmas, they've got their mocks after Christmas. They're full on. They're just working. You know, there's nothing else going on. And the teacher is pulling every second out of the bag to make sure they're prepared. So I don't agree with that.
0: We've talked about parents a lot, but how about the idea of students driving better attendance? Is that something that schools consider? Is that something that teachers consider?
4: Yeah, very much so. We have a competition every week, actually, to each form, who's got the best attendance. So it's a real competition. So each year group will be competing against the other year group to who's got the best attendance and at the end of each term then we celebrate those students who've got 100% attendance and the form who's got the best attendance so there's a kind of this community of you know th- this is really important and it- and if you do it you will be you get rewarded for it so there's a real sort of celebration around getting that bit right but that also creates a bit of pressure for the people who aren't getting into school because actually they go actually, I want to be part of this. So that's the real positive, actually, around how do you reward and how do you really celebrate the fact that you, you, you are getting into school every day. And that's an expectation for the rest of your life, isn't it? I mean, we know that work. That's You've got to be in work every day. That's what it's in.
0: So in the UK you get fined if you don't send your child to school. That's in the state system. In the private school system, my understanding is that they've got justice strict because they got fed up with people taking their children out. Do you think that that's something that could be introduced here? Because there doesn't seem to be that level of punishment, I suppose, here in the UAE.
4: I just don't know if you could manage it. I don't know the, the country well enough to actually make it, you know, that kind of cool. I think the understanding of why you're doing it working in the UK, I mean, I I always said to the parents, you know, if they've got a 90% attendance, they're missing four weeks a year. They're missing half a year over five years. That's a massive amount of time. You know, if you think of half a year of your schooling, when you're working towards your GCSEs, it has a huge impact. And you look at all the studies. I mean, you can go to the gov.uk and have a look at their studies. They've got studies all over it. And it's all about how much difference it makes on their progress, their attainment. And I think that's how we need to educate parents here so they understand. Actually, it's crucial they're in school. 90% attendance, they talk about you drop a grade at GCSE. It's that significant. So you've really got to think about that. And that could be the difference between you getting into university and not getting
0: So oddly enough, I've noticed that on their school reports, there's a list of, you know, how many days they've missed. I take great pride in the fact that they barely miss a single day. Although, of course, COVID did slightly affect that attendance. Do you think that COVID-19 has changed people's perspective on attendance and made them think maybe, well, they can just homeschool for the final week?
4: I tend to think it's the reverse. I think parents suddenly had a realisation of how hard it is to teach a child. And I think that value of being in school, but also that social value, isn't it? It's being in school with the other children and actually spending time together, socialising and developing as the whole child. I think parents have seen a a new side to it. COVID opened a window that they hadn't actually seen before, literally, you know, they were looking in on their education.
0: Are the attendance rates part of the inspections criteria for the KHDA? Yeah, they
4: are. They have a very high... Um, expectation on attendance. So if you want to get the highest rating, you've got to have the best attendance. So they value it. They see it as a really key point of the whole process. And it's a very high. It's higher than the UK.
0: So even though there might not be fines, there's no doubt from the top as to what they expect pupils to do. They expect... Yeah,
4: and they really understand how important that is. That's something they always look at. Why isn't your attendance better? Why isn't it up in the top 90s where it should be? You know, and that's something we strive for all the time. You want to have the children in front of you because I can't can't do anything for you if you're not in front of me. I'm not teaching you. And the KCA understand that.
0: Interesting stuff there from Nicholas Radbourne, Director of Studies for the Senior School at Royal's Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: We're now going to try and run through just a few of the literally hundreds of comments that we've received on this topic as to whether or not it's appropriate to take your kids out of school early to beat the heat or to maybe get cheaper flights. We've heard from a teacher who thinks it's completely inappropriate. We've heard from a mother, Camilla, who thought it was absolutely okay. Her kids, her, well, I suppose her rules, essentially. Uh, Sadia has got in touch. Uh, She's made the decision to take her kids out of school before the end of term. We are a family of six and we are from India. So we are, inshallah, leaving on 22nd of June and missing out on more than a week of school.
3: Like we took this decision as the ticket prices are more than doubling in the last days of June. So we have no choice but to leave early if we want to be practical and save some money. The price difference per ticket multiplied by 6 as in our case is too huge to be ignored honestly.
0: OK, so Andrew's come into the studio to help me run through some of the messages that are coming in. Do feel free to add your voice, 4001, or you can WhatsApp on 048715500.
2: Message in from Hillary, who says, I don't know any child that does any learning in the last week of school. The teachers seem to use that last week to tidy up the classroom, clear everything up, declutter, and the children seem to just play games. That said, I keep my children in school under the last day of, until the last day of term. But why I bother often, I simply wonder.
0: Another message here, anonymous. I think schools need to get out of their traditional mindset that learning happens only at school. As Camilla said, traveling can be a great learning experience.
2: Gaia got in touch saying my kids are in an international school in Dubai. They're in the middle school there. They had exams last week and now they're doing absolutely nothing. One day they watched a movie. So there's no new content taught. They're leaving one week earlier from the end of term.
0: My goodness me! Okay, this message here says I took my daughter out of grade nine for a week and a day or two, a, or a day or two days in March this year because we were attending my niece's wedding in Scotland. My family were coming from the US. Also, I made the decision that this was more important than anything that she was going to miss, and she could just catch up on the work. Alison, thanks for that comment.
2: Sonia's been in touch. She says she'll be taking her daughter out of school a week before the end of term. With her older children, she used to ensure they stayed at school until the last day. She felt that if the teachers made the effort to be in school, then children should respect that and attend. However, Sonia says she realised over time that in their particular school, the teachers actually preferred the children to be off so that they could finish up with other jobs and work. There wasn't any structured learning, so without any guilt, we will travel early this summer.
0: Okay, Holly says that on my son's first year at primary, I kept him in school until the very last day for all the pyjama days, movies and game days. Never again. We're leaving on the 28th of June. Leaving early does get us out of the heat earlier and many of us get better airfares, but for us it's all about family. With families on both sides of the Atlantic and elderly grandparents leaving early in is now, since the summer holidays have been shortened, the only way that we can spend significant time with both. I have absolutely no guilt. Okay, I'm not taking my kids out of school. I'm keeping them in. I have to work and I think they should work too. I actually. I'm going to come down on it. I don't think you should take your kids out of school, Ellie. I think they need to learn. I think I'm taking the views of the educators that, frankly, uh, even those days when they're not doing formal learning, they are still with their peers learning what it's like to be in a structured environment or an unstructured environment. And, frankly, I'm not a teacher. So if an educator tells me something... Who am I to tell him he's wrong? It's a bit like saying to a doctor, no, all your years of expertise, all your studies, they come down to nothing because I have a feeling that it's better. That's going to get me into trouble, isn't it? Uh, Dr. Carthy says, Good afternoon. I feel it's completely inappropriate to take the kids away before the school ends the term. Even if the kids do nothing, it's good as it's perfectly fine to have fun at schools. In fact, my kids enjoy the last days of term. This message is anonymous. My son says they won't be doing anything. School has already sent an email that they should attend. And even if they didn't, I pay school fees Abdesalam, that's a message about the universities. Uh, Maria says, my children have to take exams from their native language back home. Since school finishes on the 30th of June and the staff stay one more week at the school campus, this is the week when they accommodate us for exams in our home country. That's why we're leaving school earlier. I don't mind because the kids are also very excited to meet their family after 10 months. I don't think they miss something by leaving school earlier. I suggest that midterm breaks or other days off should be cut during the school year to make up for it. Uh, Here we go. Uh, Ella says, Hi, I believe the teachers are very tired and feel the heat too. I think teachers probably prefer less kids in the classroom at the end of the school year and they do some fun learning activities in smaller groups. So if you want to take your kids out earlier, it's your choice, your money. Amelia says, They do nothing at school for the last two weeks. I don't understand why they keep on extending the school year. Weather is not like in Europe. It's like they're trying to make it the, the school here like there. My son is bored and would love to leave early. I know there are people that work and this suits them. But since lots of mums don't work, we would rather finish earlier and go on holidays for the whole summer. That's one view. Another person here who's anonymous says unless we have travel plans, then I prefer they do school until the last day. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: There is a new study out that I want us to take a look at. Ultimately, apparently, the Middle East and North Africa is experiencing a brain drain of talent out of the region because of a shortage of top universities. That's according to researchers who say concerns about future employment prospects also play a part. The studies by the Majid Al-Fatain Business Group, also McKinsey, they found that 8% of the world's university students come from the Middle East, North Africa and Pakistan, but only 1.5% of the best university are found there joining us now to talk through the consequences of this reality is dr frederick schneider he's an economist and lecturer at the university of birmingham in dubai and his research focuses on issues related to education and population in this region hi uh, dr schneider thanks for joining us on teams how are you
5: Hey Georgia. I'm good. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm very well, indeed. It's lovely to see you in person after many emails this week. Um, and great to have you on the line to get your expertise on this question. Now, this study found that there basically just aren't enough universities. Would you agree with that estimation?
5: Well, yes. Uh, there's definitely been a push to attract universities, uh, especially in the 2000s uh, and in the 2010s um, in the UAE, uh, we've seen that with many um, international branch campuses, but also uh, domestic efforts like Khalifa University. But they're not; they're just not enough to um, produce the high-quality degrees in the quantities that are necessary. Um, there have been uh, more um, efforts to increase that. Uh, we still have to see the outcomes of that. My previous. Um, institution. Cambridge um, was in talks, or there were talks between the UAE and Cambridge that are currently on hold. Um, Let's see. Um, So there are efforts. um, But uh, to date, um, there needs to be more.
0: So I mean, have countries realised this? Has investment around the Middle East and, and North Africa and Pakistan, has investment started to flow towards educational establishments?
5: Yes, yes. Uh, We see that. We see also that um, while the UAE was certainly uh, the pioneer, we see other uh, GCC countries waking up to that. Uh, We have uh, a lot of uh, Saudi Arabian universities climbing the the rankings. Um, Yeah, so there is some awakening. Um, It depends a bit on which sector uh, we're talking about. Um so for example the budgets for federal institutions, um they've climbed in, in nominal terms, but not so much in real terms. Um we've seen a, a reshuffle, ministerial reshuffle. I think the new minister uh will will announce uh, further uh initiatives soon, I hope, um to keep that um, impulse this this um this momentum going
0: is your feeling that this needs to be a top-down process. I mean, ultimately, do we need government investment in tertiary education, or can it be done by just opening up to private institutions and making the economic environment more palatable to them?
5: Um, it it must be both. Um, so, uh, one of the examples is uh, an idea that was recently floated on. Uh, on the Dubai uh, National University modeled on, on Singapore. Um, ultimately um, we should have some of the windfall gains that come from the high oil prices right now um, funneled into education, which, which is a stated top priority um, uh, in in any vision that you open up. It's, it's about uh, transitioning from oil to knowledge and, um, that needs to be fostered by government money, uh, but also, of course, the the environment should be such that uh, private institutions or also uh, international uh, branch campuses uh, come back. Right. So, so we have a. Uh, a flattening of the line of, of, of this influx of foreign institutions, high quality institutions, and um, that must also be prioritised. I think we, we need both, definitely.
0: I've heard some uh, universities suggest that the reason why the top quality students don't stay in this country is because there isn't the sort of res- research and development infrastructure that uh, encourages people to stay here and, and, and then, and study and then do further studies. Is that, is that accurate?
5: That's certainly part of it. So you need a, an entire ecosystem, right? You don't need uh, only the universities. You also need uh, companies, research institutes. Um, if you look at Silicon Valley uh, or also Bell Labs or other historical precedents, that's a whole ecosystem. And you don't build that uh, in in a couple of years from scratch. You need, you need the Stanford, you need the Berkeley, and then you need the companies, um, and as I said, there are efforts in all these directions. They certainly need to be reinforced and strengthened, and there must be more money put to that. Uh, but it also just needs time. Um, and one part of that is certainly to, uh, as is done, to send bright students out uh, to um, established international institutions and then come back, hopefully, um, to establish the same kind of uh, environment here.
0: I suppose that is always the challenge. If you send your students away on scholarships, for example, to top universities around the world, then the challenge is whether or not you can persuade them to come back. Now, I know in Saudi, they've been doing that scholarship system for years, and it's worked incredibly well for them. But is that something that you think the UAE should do more?
5: Definitely more. Uh, again, there are efforts um, that that can always be strengthened. Um, uh, you've got Khalifa university um i think uh, what should be done for example is is a framework um such as the national science foundation in the us where all of this is bundled uh, and and guided through expert knowledge um and, and and the effort is is concerted to incorporate all the universities all the research facilities um to to manage grants etc and and that would certainly help if that would what was more coordinated
0: absolutely fascinating to hear about the ways in which the educational this tertiary education system needs to develop here in the middle east to discourage a brain drain Uh, dr frederick schneider thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it Dr. Frederick Schneider, an economist and lecturer at the University of Birmingham in Dubai. This is Eye on Education, on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: We are discussing a study into universities in this region, uh, because new research showed that Middle East and North Africa is experiencing a brain drain of talent out of the region because of a shortage of top universities in the region. But what do students from the UAE or why do students from the UAE decide to study abroad? Now, earlier, I spoke to Fiona McKenzie. She is head of education at Carfax Education, which helps students find the universities that suit them. And I asked her whether she has seen this trend uh, of students leaving the UAE, leaving the Middle East to study uh, in her experience. Uh,
6: yes, very much so. Um, as you say, we work with lots of kind of families across the region but I think for many students um, you know, who are educated in, in this part of the world that the concept of studying abroad is, is like a key ambition of theirs, it's sort of hard baked into their plans if you like and obviously lots of local governments have um, scholarship funds to, to support this as well. Um, I think there's lots of reasons why they want to study abroad. Um, they want access to a high quality, you know, university education. Um, there's a diversity, kind of wide range of courses um, that they can access across the world. I think for are lots of them actually. They also want the experience of just living somewhere different and um, maybe forming an you know, international network of friends and, and contacts. Um, and exposure to kind of, you know, different different cultures. I think the other thing is studying in English is a very important factor um, for a lot of students, you know, hence why the UK, US, Canada and Australia are really popular destinations.
0: I mean, I find this really interesting because I studied uh, in the UK and although I definitely wanted to leave home, I definitely wanted to move away, it never occurred to me to go as far afield as to go abroad. Now, do you think if there were more, better universities in the Middle East that that they would be more likely to stay here.
6: Um, I think it would but I think the students from here are, um, you know they look at it from a very 360 perspective you know many of them are, have come from very international backgrounds some of them want to go back and study in their home country some of them you know, if, you, if you want to study marine biology for example and you're, and you're kind of located here you would look all over the world for the best marine biology course available um, and I think students here are uniquely kind of privileged in that sense that they have this very global perspective but there are some fantastic universities here I mean I think there are, there's are something like like um, 125 uh, universities across the kind of Middle East that are globally ranked. So it's not that there is a, is a kind of lack of good quality university education here. I mean, in Dubai, I think we're very lucky because we've got universities from, from England, with sort of Birmingham and Middlesex, and we've got and, and universities from Australia with Wollongong and Murdoch. So there's lots of, um, you know, fantastic university opportunities here. And some of them will let you study here and then go and study in, the, in, the other, in their kind of host country as well. So... I think, you know, there are, there are good universities here. I think one of the things that, that perhaps that, um, you know, I know that the UAE are looking at doing is developing more research-based kind of universities because that's what really kind of drives the quality of a university. Um, and I think that's perhaps the next stage. And to study UAE is definitely, a thing, you know, they, they definitely want it to become a hub for, for university study.
0: Are universities here and, and in the wider Middle East, are they seen as, as good as going to a European or an American or an Australian university? Because, of course, part of going to university is the experience itself, and then part of it is the degree that you then put on your CV.
6: Absolutely. And I think parents here are very, very conscious of kind of rankings. Um, and I think, you know, generally speaking, universities in the the US and the UK tend to be a bit more highly ranked than universities that are found locally across the region, um, and and that is a very useful ticket. You know, a good degree from a, a well recognised university is is globally acceptable where, wherever you are. Um, but I think what we also kind of need to bear in mind is that these students may go off and study abroad, but I think increasingly they're coming back here to work. I mean, we've certainly had students who've come back and trained, you know, gone to university in the UK and then come back here to train as accountants or to kind of go into journalism or media or PR. So just because they are going to study abroad doesn't mean they're going to stay there. <laughs>
0: Well, that is, I mean, that is good news, because it's not a brain drain if they go away to study, but then bring their expertise back with them. I mean, that's what Saudi Arabia has been doing for, for decades, you know, sending its students on scholarships abroad. And then, and then they come back and they raise their families in the Saudi and they, and they bring their skills uh, back to the country where they grew up. I mean, as long as that's happening, then the country has still got a knowledge economy, right?
6: Absolutely, exactly and you know there are benefits to kind of going abroad and studying abroad and building up new experiences and as you say bringing those back to your country and then using those skills, those new skills in, in, your, in your country to, to develop that knowledge economy. So I think that's very much what what we're seeing at the moment and I think that's going to increase in the future. But obviously, you know, it's important for all of these countries to have their own um, university kind of provision so that actually they can attract and keep those students within the country as well. But I think at the moment one of the issues is that the, the courses on offer, particularly you know, across the UAE, um, are a little bit more limited than maybe you would find in other parts of the world. So I think it's that diversity of of courses that you can get outside the country that that can help but the courses offered here are really aligned to the economic needs of the country which is hugely sensible so you know there's lots of courses around business around aeronautical engineering around hospitality Uh, so again you know it's good to start i think with those sorts of courses the, the degrees that are qualifying people to actually really contribute to the economy in a very direct way
0: Fiona McKenzie, their head of education at Carfax Education. This is Eye on Education on the agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year Seven.
0: Now, this is always my favourite interview of the week because it's usually enormous fun. Essentially, what we do is we turn our attention to an unusual classroom or an unusual school somewhere in the world. We've gone all over the place. Last week, we were in Australia speaking to a school which essentially does it all outdoors, a nature green school. Uh, We've also been to the jungle, we've been to the desert, we've been to African plains. Uh, And this week, we are going somewhere truly extraordinary because in some areas of the world, the environment itself requires educators to think laterally when it comes to their school buildings. And one organisation has done just that in Bangladesh. Now, I'm really sorry, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. But Shidhulai Swanevar Sangstha have been operating the floating schools in the flood prone areas since 2002. So that's two decades now. Their teachers operate in remote river basins with limited access to the internet. But to discuss their work, I'm joined on the line now by the founder and floating school innovator, Mohammed Rezwan. Uh, he's joining me now on Microsoft Teams. Uh, Mohammed, thank you so much for your time. What a pleasure to meet
7: you. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me today.
0: It is my pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about where your schools are located and, and how, you know, I mean, I got the clue from the floating. Are they on boats?
7: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, all the schools are on traditional boats. Uh, we work in the northwestern parts of Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh is a low-lying delta. So every year when the monsoon um, starts, during the months from June to October every year, a lot of water comes from the upstreams, from the me- me- melting glaciers of Himalayas. And these low-lying areas get flooded. And it becomes very difficult for the children to go to school at that time. I thought if the children cannot go to school because of lack of proper transportation, then the school should go go to them by boat.
0: I mean, that is a truly brilliant idea. And you came up with this back in 2002. I imagine you started with one floating school, one boat. How many do you have now?
7: Yes, we started with one uh, boat and uh, these boats are different from the traditional uh, local boats. Uh, we, um, I designed the boats in a way that it has flat bottom so that it can navigate through the flooded lands during the monsoon season. And, and the, the roof is placed uh, at a height so that people can easily walk through it's column free and we are using solar energy to run the computer equipments so uh, from one board over these uh, over the years of last 20 years um, now we have 26 school boards then we also have other types of facilities on the boards we use different boards for different types of activities including libraries training centers health clinics uh, educational playground so all these services are on the boat and in total we operate 52 uh, boats uh, for all these services uh, that we are bringing to the remote river basins throughout the year.
0: How many students do you have in your schools? Uh,
7: the 26 school boards uh, have a total of um, uh, 2,340 students. Uh, but we have, uh, through our other services, we are reaching a total of and 1, 150,000 uh, people a year.
0: Wow. I mean, it's just the most extraordinary mission. And it feels, you know, I mean, it, it's really heartwarming to hear about the work you're doing. How are the schools funded?
7: We... We receive funding from um, foundations, um, locally and internationally, and corporations, and it has been very, uh, it has been challenging to raise these funds. Uh, and also, we have our own um, income-generating activities, so all these things actually uh, made us possible to operate the projects. But when I started the organization in. 1998, it means um, the floating school was introduced in 2002, so the organization started about four years before launching the first school board. When I started the organization, I started with only 500 US dollar, uh, old computer and a vision to bring changes in the community. And um, one by one, the local people um, joined with us and gradually we developed our fleet and operations. Uh, Now you operate three districts in northwestern parts of Bangladesh.
0: Can you describe a little bit about what the school day is like for the children? You know, the sort of, it starts with assembly maybe, the lessons, PE, Mm -hmm. playtime, all of that type of thing. And whether they eat lunch with you or whether they bring it in with them?
7: Uh, We we work with the people uh, living uh, below the poverty line um and in Bangladesh 24 percent of the people uh, live below the poverty line and uh, it becomes uh, it is one of the challenges uh, of the floating schools that uh, we target this population uh, floating school uh, is a combination of a school bus and school house it collects students from uh different places and finally docking at the last station it arranged classes on the boat Uh, our school has a classroom facility for 30 students it means three zero students Uh, and uh, each class has a teacher and uh, we have computers and books and also we use the solar energy one boat arrange three different sessions. It means when the first session ends, the board drops the student at their places and then it moves forward to another direction to um, provide, to um, collect another groups of students and then uh, arrange their classes and drops them off. So this is the way a school board works uh, throughout that day we provide education six days a week and we provide all the educational materials free to the student and all of our educational training and information services at our organisation we provide for free.
0: Are parents in this region keen, enthusiastic to send their children to the to the river schools, to the boat schools?
7: When we started uh, back in 2002, uh, It was uh, a challenge to bring the students on the boat because they never saw a floating school before. As far as we are concerned that at the time, about 20 years ago, there was not any such floating school, not only in Bangladesh, but also other parts of the world. So we introduced the the idea of floating school. Now the idea of floating school is implemented replicated by other organizations in Bangladesh and also eight other countries around the world. Uh, but when we started, we started, uh, they thought that what kind of schooling is that? Uh, but uh, but um, uh, from day one, we got few students and over the f- next few weeks, more came. So at the end of the month, we get 30 students on our board. And when the parents saw that the schools bring education at the doorsteps, it means that the children do not need to travel a long way to go to the school. And when the monsoon starts in the river basin, when the heavy rain starts, the muddy, it has become very difficult to walk through the muddy streets and not, not uh, uh, every house has uh, school. the boats. So only the rich people in the rural communities, they own a boat. It's uh, like having a car in, in in a rural, in a community like, uh, poor community like Bangladesh. You get it, so, oh sorry carry uh, on. Yeah, so it actually overcomes, uh, uh, helps with the transportation because uh, during the monsoon season in the r- remotest river basin the children cannot go to school. But this floating school, it brings education at the doorsteps
0: it sounds like the floating schools have become and your other flotilla of boats have become a real part of the community in the river basin
7: it has created a ownership between the people and 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 the project because the boats are um, um, constructed locally with local materials it creates employment Uh, the boatmen the teachers they are from the local community. We provide training to the teachers so that they can provide quality education. And uh, as the project is sustained, has been sustained over the last 20 years, so there is a, a strong relationship between the project and the people, the school board and with the community.
0: You know, sir, it's been an absolute inspiration speaking to you. Thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating to hear about the boats, to hear about the floating schools and the role that you guys have played in the community. I wish you all the best with your organisation. And thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That was Mohamed Rezwan. Now he is the founder and floating school innovator with the organisation which is called Shidhulai Swanirva Sangstha. I do apologise if my pronunciation. In fact, I still have Mohamed on the line. Mohamed, can you say that for me? I'm sure I'm murdering it, the pronunciation.
7: Uh, Yeah, you you, you pronounce rightly. It's Shidhulai Swanirva Sangstha.
0: Thank you so much, I really appreciate that. Uh, If you want to find out more about that organisation, please do check out their website. It's shidhulai.org, I'll spell that for you, S-H-I-D-H-U-L-I-D. AI Rather dot or. we will put the details on our website because I just ruined that. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. Absolutely fascinating. If you do know of any other intriguing schools around the world, we would love to speak to them. We love this series. It's one of the best things I think we do on the radio. Uh, and absolutely amazing to hear about the work there done by those floating schools. Twenty years, two decades they've been teaching in that community. There must be children who've grown up and into adulthood now. This is I on Education on the Agenda.
1: The Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people.
0: Now, a major organization here in the UAE is looking to award grants to NGOs and educational institutions that are looking to solve long standing challenges in refugee youth education. Abdulaziz Al Ghurair Refugee Education Fund has already benefited 48,000 young people in the UAE, Jordan, and and Lebanon. And joining me now is Dana Dejani. She's Director for Programs and Partnerships for the Foundation. Hello there. Good afternoon, Dana. How are you?
8: Hello, Georgia. So nice to be here.
0: Lovely to have you Thanks. on the line. Now tell me, what type of programs have you supported already?
8: So the types of programs that we are supporting are in the secondary education. So what we realized, what we, what we really wanted to do was to make sure that The acute needs on the ground are actually effectively addressed through our partners. So 1.8 percent of refugees in Lebanon do not complete secondary education, while around 4.8 percent in Jordan don't complete secondary education. So what happens to the 90 percent plus? So what we try to do is to provide support in strengthening their access and academic strengthening to be able to complete formal secondary education at the one level The second level is looking at how can we provide young refugees with and vulnerable host community youth with uh, certifications that are either accredited or industry-recognized to be able to get successful employment or livelihood outcomes. So these are the two main areas that we've been supporting.
0: It sounds like great work. How much money do you have to give away? How much are these grants?
8: So I'll... We really try to look at the impact and what we try to do is really focus on the gaps on the ground. So if I can go back a bit um, to when it was created in 2018 by His Excellency Abdelaziz Aziz Al-Ghurir, very well known, of course, businessman and philanthropist. His idea was to really showcase a model of strategic philanthropy and how you can move beyond charity. He had allocated at the time his own personal funds, so it's different to the funding of the foundation that he chairs, but this is his own personal fund because he likes to walk the talk. And he had contributed 100 million AED to support 20,000 refugee youth over three years. In 2019, he realised that there was more need and um, emerging challenges, and he added an additional 20 million AED. So overall, it's 120 million AED that reaches 20,000, but we have overreached our target to benefit over 48,000, as you mentioned.
0: So what we've got a minute to go, I'm afraid, not long. So what type of organisations are you looking to apply for these grants?
8: Organizations that have proven sort of successful models on the ground that have worked with refugees or vulnerable youth in jo- and are allowed to work, eligible to work in Jordan and Lebanon. They have a registration there. They are partners with either local organization or we encourage local organizations to apply. We try to get you know as many innovative solutions as possible within these two priority areas that I mentioned earlier.
0: It sounds like you do very, very good work indeed. And I'm so pleased to hear that you've been supporting so many uh, refugees there to help them complete their secondary education. Thank you so much for your time, Dana. I really appreciate it.
8: Thank you, Georgia.
0: Thank you very much. Dana Dajani there, a Director for Programs and Partnerships for the Abdulaziz Al-Gharaeh Refugee Education Fund. And obviously that foundation uh, works in many fields in education here and around the Middle East. And that's all from the Ion Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11 a.m. to catch up on the latest education headlines.